0: Praise the Lord. I'll invite you to turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1 again. We are teaching a, a series um, on spiritual dominion, and we want to continue along that line a little bit further. Um, I've made the comment before, and it, it certainly bears out, that um, I, I really don't have a, an outline or a plan for this. I'm, I'm sharing thoughts that, uh, uh, that I've gleaned and things that... Uh, um, seem to jump out at me from the word of God concerning the subject we certainly don't claim that the things that we're saying is the last word on the subject um, we're in a continual state of growth at least I am and I know more now than I knew last year and I hope to know more next year than I better know more next year than I know today so anyway Genesis chapter 1 verse 26 and God said let us make man in our image and after our likeness he made man an exact duplication of himself And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. It is an undisputed fact and one of the great truths of Scripture that God created man to have dominion on the earth. Now, the Bible says God never changes. So if that was God's original intent, it's God's present day intent. If it was God's original intent, then it's God's uh, eternal intent. Amen? Man was created to have dominion on the earth well we know what happened we know that uh, in the garden of Eden Satan came and uh, disguised himself and started planting doubts and wrong thoughts in Eve's mind and she partake being deceived she partook of the forbidden fruit broke the commandment of God and then she gave to Adam he was complicit in it apparently he was standing right there and didn't exercise the authority that had been given to them and everything changed God told them in the day that they ate of the forbidden fruit that they would surely die, and they did. It wasn't physical death, but they died spiritually. They were separated and estranged from God. No longer could they fellowship with God in the cool of the day, walking and talking with him in the garden like they had before. Now they have a different source of information. Before, their only source of information was God and the like spirit between the two of them. Now they have source, uh, a new source of information that's coming from their flesh. First thing the Bible says that they recognized was, as it was that they were naked and ashamed. First thing the Bible says after they fell is that they became self-aware. Apparently that's not always a good thing, folks. Well, Jesus comes on the scene thousands of years later to fulfill God's plan, eternal plan of redemption. The Bible says God, that Jesus was slain from the foundations of the world. That means the beginning and the creation of the universe and not just when God put Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. It indicates to us, or suggests to us, I should say, that it was God's eternal purpose to make man in his image and to provide himself a redeemer. Well, when Jesus is here on the earth, Jesus is operating like no other man ever did. He's living a life free from sin. He's untainted since he's born of a virgin he's the son of woman he's unaffected by adam's sin that passed down through the lineage of man and untainted by sin he must be operating in its highest form according to the blessings of abraham he had to be because he's always a doer of the word i'm talking about before he began his public ministry we see that uh, the first miracle that he performed was turning the water into wine in John chapter 2. And Mary says some very interesting, startling things about him to the servants. He seems to rebuff her when she comes and says, we're out of wine. He says, woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. But then she turns to the servants and she says, whatever he tells you to do, do it. Now Now I know that moms always think the best of their kids. But that's a very, very strange thing for her to say except and unless she has experience with his words producing supernatural things. Folks, I want you to understand something. Jesus experienced the miraculous before he ever did a miracle. Had to have. Because the blessing of Abraham overcoming the power of sin and death in the life of the individual would certainly be classified as miraculous, wouldn't it? And as... An individual free from sin, never having transgressed the commandment of God in any way, the law of Moses was perfectly kept in Jesus and through him throughout his lifetime. That has to mean that the blessings of Abraham were upon him in abundance. Whatever this guy touches turns to gold, so to speak. It prospers in his hand. Well, that must be what Mary is referring to when she talks to the servants. Whatever he tells you to do, do it. The indication seems to be, or the implication seems to be, that she recognizes Jesus has the answer for just about every situation. Which the wisdom of God would be part of the blessing of Abraham, wouldn't it? Nevertheless, Jesus enters into his miracle ministry. He's baptized by John in the Jordan River and the Holy Ghost comes upon him. He's anointed of God. Now think about what that means. If Jesus had been on the earth as the Son of God... Who can anoint God? What would there be a need for him to be anointed? Well, the anointing of God by the Holy Ghost coming upon him when he was baptized by John in the Jordan River was not for him. He was already living above the, the, uh, the works of the enemy in his individual life. It was so that he could display the power of God for the benefit and of others. He started doing miracles that helped and benefited the mankind. And so that's where his miracles started. Jesus said himself many, many, many times that he was operating on the earth not as the Son of God, but he identified himself as the Son of Man. Now turn with me over to John chapter 5. I think we looked at this before, but it's uh, important that we see it again in light of the direction that we want to go tonight. John chapter 5. Jesus claims his... Being born of a woman, which is what son of man means when he identifies himself in that term. Being born of a woman was his um, foundation for the authority that he he operated in here in the earth. John chapter 5. Let's start reading in verse uh, 25. Jesus said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, the hour is coming and now is... When the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and they that hear shall live. For as the Father has life in himself, so has he given to the Son to have life in himself. Now remember when I I said in uh, Genesis chapter 1 verse 26 that God made man an exact duplication of himself. God made Jesus as a human being an exact duplication of himself too. Same life, same spirit, same source of origin. And Jesus is referring to that. He said, for as the father has life in himself, so also has he given to the son to have life in himself. Now notice verse 27. And has given him authority to execute judgment. Has given him authority to execute judgment. Now this word judgment is interesting. We'll see it a number of times tonight. It means justice, specifically divine law. The word judgment means justice. It can also mean condemnation or damnation. But he said, And has given him because of the life of God within him. And has given him authority to execute judgment also because he's the son of man. Not because he's the son of God. Because he's the son of man. What I want you to see, folks, is that Jesus is telling us that authority on the earth was given to man. So if God came to the earth even in human form and operated as God if Jesus had not laid aside his heavenly power and glory and was operating here on the earth doing miracles and signs and wonders as the son of God God would have been operating illegally he would have been operating outside of the boundaries that he established when he created man in his own image and gave him dominion on the earth it had to be a man to exercise dominion and notice a part of that dominion to fulfill God's plan of redemption was to execute judgment to execute judgment and what did Jesus come to judge he didn't come to judge man well, what did he come to judge keep that in mind because we're going to see it let's read another couple of verses before we turn to the next one marvel ye not at this for the hour is coming in the which all that are in the grave shall hear his voice and shall come forth they that have done good unto the resurrection of life And they that have done evil under the resurrection of damnation. This word damnation is the same word judgment. So he's got to be talking about the work of redemption. He's got to be talking about even following the cross. When the dead in Christ shall rise. And the unrighteous dead shall rise and stand before the white throne judgment. He's talking about the end of times. Now turn with me to... um, John chapter I think I want to go to John chapter 12 next John chapter 12 um, I don't want to read the whole thing he performs a healing miracle in the first part of the chapter the middle part of the chapter I should say um, well let's start reading verse 27 he said now is my soul troubled and what shall I say father save me from this hour but for this cause I came unto this hour in other words he's talking about he's come to the end of his life and he realizes it and he's, he's got to fulfill the plan of God and go through with that which uh, he dreads the most which is being separated from the father being made sin then Jesus says in verse 28 father glorify thy name Then came there a voice from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. The people, therefore, that stood by and heard it said that it thundered. Others said that an angel spoke to him. And Jesus answered and said, this voice came not because of me. In other words, not for my benefit. That goes back to some people saying that an angel spoke to him. He says, no, an angel didn't speak to me. He said, this voice didn't come for my benefit, but for your sakes. Now notice verse 31. He said, now is the judgment, same word, judgment, same word, damnation. Now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out. So I want you to see what judgment that Jesus came to execute is all about. It's about executing judgment on the enemy, the evil one. He goes on and says, and I, and I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. Now look with me over to John chapter 16. John chapter 16, Jesus is talking about the work of the Holy Ghost after the resurrection, during the church age. And the things that he says are in line with what he said that his purpose was before. So what I want you to see is he's talking about and looking forward to the day after the judgment, his judgment is executed on Satan. Uh, Let's start in verse 7. He said, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is expedient, helpful, beneficial, for you that I go away for if I go not away the comforter will not come unto you but if I depart I will send him unto you and when he is come he will reprove the word means to re- reprove uh, means to convince or convict it means to admonish literally it means to prove something so he said and when he is come he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment same word judgment condemnation damnation then he explains how Of sin, because they believe not on me. Of righteousness, because I go to my father and you shall see me no more. Of judgment, because the prince of this world is judged. Folks, I want you to realize something. A very, very important, maybe even the significant issue of Jesus' work on the earth was the judgment on Satan. of judgment because the prince of this world is judged. I have yet many things to say to you but you cannot bear them now. Howbeit when he the spirit of truth is come he will guide you into all truth for he shall not speak of himself but whatsoever he shall hear that shall he speak and he will show you things to come. In other words Jesus is saying now after I am uh, crucified go to the cross buried and then resurrected then the holy ghost will come And the Holy Ghost will reprove or convince, convict the world of sin because they don't believe in me, of righteousness because I go to my Father and you don't see me anymore, and of judgment because the prince of this world has been judged. In other words, he's speaking to that which will be accomplished by his death, burial, and resurrection. Now, in order for us to talk about the work that... uh, well, we know that 1 John chapter 3, verse 8, I believe it is, says, For this purpose the Son of Man was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. What does that mean? What does it mean for Jesus to execute judgment upon Satan, to cast out the prince of this earth? We know that can't mean that he destroyed him or annihilated him, did away with him. Because Paul speaks to the church And says that Satan is still the God of this world. So it can't mean that he does away with with Satan before the end of time. Now I'll draw your attention to the fact that I think we looked at this before in a couple of places. During Jesus' ministry. Where evil spirits cried out. And questioned Jesus. They questioned his authority to operate on the earth. They said who art thou son of God? Hast thou come to torment us before the time? what does that mean? That means there's a time. There's a time when Satan and evil spirits will be dealt with once and for all. And apparently they know about it. But they also know that they've got limited rule and reign here on the earth until that time comes. And they were complaining. Really, it was a matter of justice. They were making a claim of injustice which is laughable evil spirits claiming injustice but they were making a claim of injustice against Jesus they're saying it's not time yet and here you're dislodging us from our homes hast thou come to torment us before the time now what does that mean well it certainly implies that he could have if he had wanted to it certainly implies that he had the power to do so Otherwise, the devil would have said, you can't do anything to us. It's not time yet. But they're complaining because of what they suspect that he's going to do. So what does that mean? That means God could have operated illegally if he wanted to. He had the power to operate illegally, but his goodness and his righteousness prevents him from doing so. He's operating according to divine justice. So Jesus told them to shut up and come out, and they did, which is usually a good way to handle the devil. Don't talk to the guy. Shut him up and send him on. So when Jesus' authority was questioned, then we have to recognize that part of God's eternal plan of redemption was for Jesus to execute judgment in a righteous manner, a righteous and lawful manner. Now, what is that? Well, turn back with me to Leviticus chapter 6. Leviticus chapter 6. We know what Jesus did. We know what Jesus' plan was and that was to go to the cross to be our substitute. We know that he said that after the substitute was made, the Holy Ghost would show us things to come. He would reprove the world of judgment because the prince of this world is cast out. In other words... He's saying the work of the Holy Ghost, one work of the Holy Ghost, is to show us how judgment was executed, what that judgment means. Now, in Leviticus chapter 6, I'm going to start reading verse 24 because we want to look at, um, and we're, we're going to have to be brief in this. There's, we could take a week just talking about some of this stuff. But I want to briefly talk about the work of Jesus on the cross. Now, the only way that we're going to be able to understand what Jesus did is to recognize the Old Testament types that he fulfilled. Otherwise, we'd have no way to know what God's plan accomplished. So here's part of what Jesus did. Verse 24, And the Lord spoke unto Moses, saying, "Speak unto Aaron and to his sons, saying, This is the law of the sin offering. In the place where the burnt offering is killed, shall the sin offering be killed before the Lord. It is most holy. Now, I want you to notice that. The sin offering is holy. See, I think a lot of times we jump to scriptures like 2 Corinthians 5.21 where it says God made Jesus to be sin for us who knew no sin that we may, might be made the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. And we focus on the fact that God made Jesus sin. Well, to some people, they can't handle that and they can't, uh, they can't accept it because they can't wrap their mind around the, the, uh, the idea that Jesus ceased to be the Son of God, and therefore cease to be holy. And if we've left that impression, we've done a disservice to people. Jesus never stopped being holy as the sin offering. The Bible says the sin offering is holy. Not only that, it tells us some specifics about the sin offering and how it's to be offered that Jesus had to fulfill in order to to be a, a worthy substitute. So it says the priest that offers it for sin, verse 26, shall eat it. Now the word eat means to consume. It can be translated eat or it can mean consume or devour. You're going to find in verse 30 that it says nobody shall eat of the sin offering. So where it's talking about where this word translated eat is concerned, it's got to be devoured or consumed by fire. So it says the priest that offers it for sin shall... for sin shall consume it. In the holy place shall it be consumed, in the court of the tabernacle of the congregation. Whatsoever shall touch the flesh thereof shall be holy. Notice anything that comes in contact with the sin offering is holy. And when there is sprinkled of the blood thereupon any garment, thou shalt wash that whereupon it was sprinkled in the holy place. But the earthen vessel wherein it is sodden shall be broken Jesus talked about himself being a, like a broken vessel when he's on the cross. And if it be sodden in a brazen pot, it shall be scoured, both scoured and rinsed in water. All the males among the priests shall eat thereof, meaning consume it. It is most holy. And no sin offering, here's how we know that it means they're not literally eating it, and no sin offering whereof any of the blood is brought. Into the tabernacle of the congregation to reconcile with all in the holy place shall be eaten. It shall be burnt in the fire. So notice some things about the sin offering. First of all, it's holy. There are specific instructions given as to to how it's to be offered. Anything that comes in contact with it is made holy. And it's to be burned in the fire. Keep that in mind. It's to be burned in the fire. Now look with me to chapter 16. Chapter 16 tells us the, the, uh, the plan or the method whereby the day of atonement sacrifice is made. And we'll start reading in verse 5. And he shall take of the congregation, talking about the, the priests, of the children of Israel, two kids of the goats for a sin offering and one ram for a burnt offering. Now, please notice he's saying that two, two rams or two goats shall, be, shall make up the sin offering. There's got to be two. Now, this is not the sin offering that was spoken of before because anytime somebody sinned or transgressed or brought the, broke the law of Moses, they could bring an animal to be offered as a sin offering. This is specific instruction concerning the Day of Atonement. So Jesus not only fulfilled, had to fulfill the sin offering type, He also had to fulfill the the Day of Atonement type. We read the first one because it gives us some information that this one doesn't give. By this time, Moses and the, the priests are already supposed to understand how the sin offering works. So he says, He shall take of the congregation of the children of Israel two kids of the goats for a sin offering and one ram for a burnt offering. And Aaron shall offer his bullock or the ram of the sin offering, which is for himself and shall make an atonement for himself and for his house. And he shall take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. So if you got the picture, there's three animals, but one of the animals doesn't count Is to, to make um, uh, a sacrifice for Aaron. So the two goats are what's important, and these are presented before the Lord in the door, in the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. Verse 9, uh, verse 8. And Aaron shall cast lots upon the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for the scapegoat. So one is going to be the sin offering, the other is going to be the scapegoat. But both of them together make up the one complete sacrifice. And Aaron shall bring the goat upon which is the Lord's lot fell and offer him for a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell to be the scapegoat "'shall be presented alive before the Lord "'to make an atonement with him "'and to let him go for a scapegoat into the wilderness. "'And Aaron shall bring the the bullock of the sin offering, "'which is for himself, "'and shall make an atonement for himself and for his house, "'and shall kill the bullock of the sin offering, "'which is for himself. "'And he shall take a censer full of burning coals of fire "'from off the altar before the Lord, "'and his hands full of sweet incense, "'beaten small, and bring it within the veil.' And he shall put the incense upon the fire before the Lord that the cloud of the incense may cover the mercy seat that is upon the testimony that he die not. And he shall take of the blood of the bullock and sprinkle it with his finger upon the mercy seat. Now, this is the one that he's making his own sacrifice for or uh, the sin offering for himself. He shall take the blood of the bullock and sprinkle it with his finger upon the mercy seat eastward. And before the mercy seat, shall he sprinkle of the blood with his finger seven times. Then shall he kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people and bring his blood within the veil and do with that blood as he did with the blood of the bullock and sprinkle it upon the mercy seat and before the mercy seat. And he shall make an atonement for the holy place. Please notice this. He's making atonement for the holy place with the blood of the sin offering. He shall make an atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the children of Israel, because of their transgressions in all their sins. And so shall he do for the tabernacle of the congregation that remaineth among them in the midst of their uncleanness. And there shall be no man in the tabernacle of the congregation when he goes in to make an atonement in the holy place until he comes out. And have made an atonement for himself and for his household and for all the congregation of Israel. And he shall go out unto the altar that is before the Lord and make an atonement for it. And shall take of the blood of the bullock and of the blood of the goat and put it upon the horns of the altar round about. And he shall sprinkle of the blood upon it with his finger seven times and cleanse it and hallow it from the uncleanness of the children of Israel. And when he has made an end of reconciling the holy place and the tabernacle of the congregation and the altar, he shall bring the live goat. Now won't you get the picture. He's using the blood of the the sin offering, which is a type of Jesus, which means Jesus' blood had to do the same thing for an eternal redemption, to sanctify the holy place. In other words, to make an opening or a way, a path for the holy place to be acceptable before God for man to enter in. That's what the sin offering was for. That's the first part of the complete offering, which is both goats. And it's holy. We've already seen in chapter six that whatever comes in contact with the sin offering or the blood thereof is made holy. This is Jesus on the cross. This is Jesus offering His physical life on the cross. His precious blood, His holy blood. Notice it says in verse. Uh, Twenty And when he has made an end of reconciling the holy place and the tabernacle of the congregation and the altar, he shall bring the live goat. And here's the second part of the sacrifice, the scapegoat. And Aaron shall lay both his hands. Please notice that it's important that he does it with both hands. He shall lay both his hands upon the head of the live goat and confess over him all the iniquities of the children of Israel. And all their transgressions and all their sins, putting them upon the head of the goat and shall send him away by the hand of a fit man into the wilderness. And the goat shall bear upon him all their iniquities unto a land not inhabited. Please notice that phrase, into a land not inhabited. And he shall let go the goat in the wilderness. Now some people have a hard time, and I understand, I get it, maybe we just haven't done as good a job teaching this stuff as we should have. But some people have a hard time understanding how Jesus could be made sin without sinning himself. And if he sinned himself, then he loses his righteous and holy place, position. And he's no longer a worthy sacrifice. So a lot of people get tripped up with this. But please notice that the Old Testament type was for a live goat, an offering unto the Lord, without spot or blemish who bore away the sins and iniquities of Israel. Now, did the goat sin? No, those sins were transferred or conferred upon the live goat. He's just as worthy of sacrifice as the sin offering. The reason he's the scapegoat instead of the sin offering is because of the way the lots fell. But they're equal, as far as God's concerned, equal in God's eyes concerning their worthiness to complete the sacrifice. One has to do with Jesus' physical life, which is a sin offering, the shedding of his blood. The other has to do with his spirit and the price that was paid after he died on the earth, died a physical death. Now please notice that the the scapegoat, after the sin offering is made and after the, the blood cleanses the holy place, makes an opening for the children of Israel before God. Notice that it's the live goat that's presented before the Lord. It has to be presented live. Now the both hands thing is significant because Jesus was examined both by the Jews and the Gentiles. He he was examined by the high priest and they pronounced that there was nothing wrong with him. He hadn't done anything wrong, so they had to produce false witnesses against him. The other hand represents the Roman government, which was the world power. Pilate examined him and said, I don't find anything in him worthy of death. In other words, Jesus is becoming the scapegoat for the sins of mankind, not just the sins of the Jews. Jews and Gentiles. The sins of mankind were conferred upon him. And he was let go, carried out and then let go into the wilderness. Notice the Bible calls that a land not inhabited a land not inhabited now from that point the Bible doesn't tell us what happened to the, to the scapegoat but we know that since it's bearing the sins of, of mankind the judgment of God had to fall upon it in some way or another whether that means he's eaten up by another animal whether it means he starves to death maybe he falls off of a cliff breaks his neck in some way or maybe the fire of God falls where nobody can see it that part we don't know I want you to look with me over to uh, Isaiah 53 and see what Isaiah said about some of these things. Now, remember what we found out about the sin offering. The sin offering has to, after the blood is offered, there's a cleansing and consecration. It has to be burned with fire. Notice what Isaiah says. Um... I don't want to read the whole thing. I'm running out of time. Let's, uh, well, we've got to start in verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs, sicknesses, and carried our sorrows, pains. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Now, how is that possible? Well, there's only one place in Scripture that Israel has any experience with iniquities being laid on something on their beh- or for their behalf, and that's the scapegoat. So, where he says he's laid upon him the iniquity of us all, the Jews understood what that had to mean. The Jews understood that when Isaiah is prophesying about the Messiah. That a work of the Messiah would be to to accomplish the work of the scapegoat of the Old Testament. The work of the scapegoat on the Day of Atonement. He has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. Doesn't mean Jesus sinned. Doesn't mean he stopped being holy. It means a part of his sacrifice. The complete sacrifice was not only the sin offering but the work of the scapegoat as well. The sin offering is holy. Holy. And makes holy anything that comes in contact with it. The scapegoat, however, is where the sins of mankind are conferred upon him. He has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. If both parts of this are not completed and fulfilled, then Jesus could not be the the fulfillment of the Old Testament type to make an eternal redemption for us. Do you understand that? It's that critical. So he laid upon him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter and as the sheep before her shearers is dumb, so he openeth not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment. Now, another translation is a lot better on this. Uh, By oppression and judgment he was taken away. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off. Please notice this phrase. For he was cut off in connection with the Lord laying upon him the iniquity of us all. He was cut off out of the land of the living. He was cut off out of the land of the living. For the transgression of my people was he stricken. And he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Now the word death is plural in the Hebrew. He made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his deaths. I mean, Jesus died multiple deaths. Well, how can you die multiple deaths? You can die physically and you can die spiritually. Those are the only two deaths I'm aware of in Scripture. And the Bible says specifically that he died both. He died a plural number of times. He had to have died spiritually. Now, that's what being cut off from the land of the living infers, which is what the scapegoat did. The scapegoat was cut off from the land of the living. He made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his deaths because he had done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. Uh, literal Jewish translations read, read this way. He, literally, it says he has made him sick. In other words, they are upon him the sickness of mankind along with the iniquities. He has made him sick. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin. Please notice this phrase. When thou hast made his soul an offering for sin. Now what's the soul referred to here? We're used to uh, spirit, soul, and body. And so we think whenever we see the word, it's talking about the mind, the will, and the emotions. Here it's talking about the spirit of Jesus. In other words, it's talking about Jesus' physical death on the cross where his body expired, but then his spirit didn't cease to exist. Well, what happened to his spirit? His spirit had to pay a price. That price was a scapegoat. That's why the Bible talks about presenting the, the scapegoat live before the Lord. He continued to live. He continued to exist. When he has made his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the travail of his soul. Remember, Jesus said on several occasions, My soul is extremely troubled. We read that in John chapter 12, I believe it was. But he said, What shall I do? Shall I try to avoid this hour? This is the reason I came. He shall see the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he has poured out his soul unto death. Please notice that phrase, he's poured out his soul unto death. Well, what death? He's not talking about physical death on the cross. He's talking about spiritual death, separation from God. Because he has poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bare the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors now I want you to look with me over to Psalm 88 Psalm 88 I, I'm, I'm going to go over time here folks I hope you bear with me on this I just can't quit in the middle because then I would have to take the, the time that we've already spent to get back to this point next time so I guess the choice is go over time tonight or go over time next week I'm going to go now Psalm 88 is um, uh, where the Holy Ghost came upon somebody. We're not sure exactly who it is. It says a song for the sons of Korah. Whoever it was was used of the Lord to speak of the price that Jesus paid when he was cut off from the land of the living as the scapegoat. O Lord, the God of my salvation, I have cried day and night before thee. Let my prayer come before thee. Incline thine ear unto my cry. For my soul is full of troubles, and my life draweth nigh into the grave. I am counted with them that go down into the pit. I am as a man who has, that has no strength, free among the dead like the slain that lie in the grave, whom thou rememberest no more, and they are cut off from thy hand. Thou hast laid me in the lowest pit, in darkness and in the deeps. Thy wrath lieth hard upon me, and thou hast afflicted me with all thy waves. Now, I want you to notice the picture. We're not through reading. We're going to read the whole thing. But I want you to see the picture here. This can't be a human being talking about the trouble he's in. Because even though we get in situations where we consider ourselves to be in a deep pit, we're never in a situation where the wrath of God is breaking over us wave after wave after wave. And that's what these words literally mean. It means that the the word waves is the word breakers. It's talking about like the waves of the sea that crash on the seashore. It's talking about the wrath of God crashing upon the individual that's being spoken of. Well, where is this individual that's being spoken of? Well, it says he's in the lowest pit. He's talking about the grave. So he's talking about that which occurs after death. Now, some people would like to say that Jesus on the cross, when he spoke to the two thieves, said to one, today you shall be with me in paradise. They like to think, and and it's comfortable to think, that Jesus went to paradise to pay the price for mankind. But paradise was a place of comfort. You remember in Luke chapter 16, where it talks about the rich man and Lazarus who died. It talks about being in hell. The rich man lift up his eyes being in torments and saw Abraham or saw Lazarus afar off in Abraham's bosom. And so he asked that Abraham would get direct Lazarus to come dip his finger in water and cool his tongue for he was tormented in the flame. You remember the story. Well, keep that in mind because, number one, Jesus could not have been in the place of comfort and fulfilled what the Scripture says about him concerning the price that he would pay. The wrath of God was not being poured out upon Abraham's bosom or anybody in it. So he couldn't be there. But remember also that the Bible says that Jesus was cut off from the land of the living. Jesus says in, i uh, will have to look it up real quick. I think it's uh, Matthew chapter 12... No, it's Matthew chapter... Let me read chapter 22. Matthew chapter 22 to you real quick. The um, the Sadducees came to him and they've got a question about the guy who's who died, the, the woman who dies, and he's got seven brothers. She winds up marrying all seven of them, and their question is, in the resurrection, whose wife will she be? Now, they're trying to trip Jesus up because they don't believe in the resurrection. They're just coming up with some stupid question trying to trip him up. And Jesus answers... That that's not the way it works. They'll be like the angels and in heaven there's no marriage between the angels and so forth. He said, but in verse uh, Matthew 22, verse 31, But as touching the resurrection of the dead, have you not read which was spoken unto you by God, saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob? God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. So Jesus couldn't have been in paradise because that was considered to be the land of the living. So he was cut off from the land of the living, which means at the very least, he had to be in the lowest part of hell. The place of the unrighteous dead. Now I say at the very least, I'm not sure I'll get there tonight. I'm I'm really not sure I should get there anyway. But perhaps I'll explain what I mean as we go. Verse six again, thou has laid me in the lowest pit. That's got to be the lowest section of hell at the very least in darkness and in the deeps. Now, can I ask you a question? Was the rich man in Luke chapter 16 in darkness when he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off? If you're in darkness, how do you see something afar off? It doesn't seem to indicate to us from what Jesus told us that things were like, and he didn't say this was a parable. He said there was a certain rich man and a certain man named Lazarus. Which means this really happened. It doesn't sound to me like even the lowest part of hell. Satisfies that which was spoken prophetically of Jesus. And the price that he would pay. Furthermore. Hell is not a place where the waves of God. Pound upon you wave after wave after wave. It's the place of the unrighteous dead. It's a place of torment. But that's not the place of eternal judgment. I'm going to read to you from, from Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20 in verse... Uh, well, I'm going to have to start in verse 11 to get it in context. John is speaking, he said, and I saw a great white throne and him that sat on it from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. And the books were opened and another book was opened, which which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which are written in the books according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it. And death and hell delivered up the dead, which were in them, and they were judged every man according to their works. Now notice verse fourteen and death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death, and whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. So what does that mean? Well, it means something very significant, I believe in the in the, the fulfillment of the Old Testament sacrifice, the scapegoat. Because here's what that means. That means that hell now, even though it's a place of torment, the place of the unrighteous dead is not the eternal judgment for man, unrighteous man. The Bible talks about hell and death being cast into the lake of fire at some point in the future, at the point point in time that we know of as the great white throne judgment. now let's think about that for a minute that means there's a judgment beyond hell for those that reject Jesus now if Jesus just went to hell that means there is a punishment an eternal punishment for sin that he didn't experience is that possible Is it possible for him to be the substitute for mankind and not have experienced the totality of God's eternal punishment upon sin? Upon him because God had laid upon him the iniquity of us all? Now, Folks, I can't prove this beyond a shadow of a doubt. But you can't disprove it either. Jesus wasn't just sent to hell. He was cast into the lake of fire. That's where the waves of God's wrath came upon him. Wave after wave after wave after wave. That must be so. Or else Jesus couldn't have paid the supreme sacrifice for mankind. Well, let's go back to Psalm 88. Let's finish reading. Verse 5 again, thou hast laid me in the lowest pit, in darkness and in the deeps. It's interesting if you if you do some study about it, there were three times where Jesus talked about people, the unsaved, the unrighteous, even the unrighteous Jews, being cast into outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. And the same three words are used every time Jesus describes. A place of eternal damnation, darkness, weeping, and gnashing of teeth. The description in Luke chapter 16 doesn't seem to indicate the darkness. That's just for you to consider. Thou hast laid me in the lowest pit, in darkness, in the deeps. Thy wrath lieth hard upon me, and thou hast afflicted me in all thy waves, with all thy waves. Thou hast put away mine acquaintance. I want you to notice that he says that he's alone. He wouldn't be alone in hell. Thou hast put away mine acquaintance far from me. Thou hast made me an abomination unto them. I am shut up and I cannot come forth. He's already laid his life down and now it's out of his hands. Mine eye mourneth by reason of affliction. Lord, I have called daily upon thee, which indicates he's there for more than one day. We know he was there for three. I have called daily upon thee. I have stretched out my hands unto thee. Wilt thou show wonders to the dead? Shall the dead arise and praise thee? Shall loving kindness be declared in the grave, or thy faithfulness in destruction? Shall thy wonders be known in the dark? There's darkness again. And thy righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? Now, this word forgetfulness is interesting. It's the only time the word is used. It literally means oblivion. It means such utter destruction that it's cast off from memory. Now, that's not what hell is. Don't get me wrong. Hell is bad enough. But there's a final judgment even upon hell and death. Death. Just as a side note, remember Jesus identified in Revelation when he appeared to John that he had the keys of hell and death. Shall thy wonders be known in the dark, verse 12 again, and thy righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? But unto thee have I cried, O Lord, and in the morning shall my prayer prevent thee. Again, it's talking about more than just a day. Lord, why casteth off my soul? Why hidest thou thy face from me? Well, the answer is easy to understand. When you accept what the word says, he hasn't yet, at the time that he's being afflicted and until the end of those three days, he hasn't yet paid the eternal price for divine justice to allow him to be risen. Now, folks, I understand that some people think that talking about things like this makes it seem that Jesus has lost his holiness. He's lost his place as the son of God. Well, he hasn't ceased to exist he never stopped being the Son of God, meaning the offspring of God who laid down his life to come to the earth and be a man. He never stopped being who he was. But remember, his purpose was to pay the price for you and me. So for me, this doesn't take away from him. This makes me appreciate the work that he did even more. It helps me understand why he's sweating great drops of blood in the Garden of Gethsemane. This is what he knows he's facing. Now, nobody else did. Nobody else could, I suppose. But this makes his work and his sacrifice even more precious to me, doesn't it, you? We see movies like The Passion of the Christ and we see the blood that was spilled and the price that he paid physically. And that's bad enough for us. We think, what a horrible thing, and I'm sure it was. But in Jesus' estimation, in his understanding, it was nothing compared to being separated from God. It was nothing compared to him being burned as the sin offering and offered as the scapegoat, cut off from the land of the living. Shall thy wonders be known in the dark and thy righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? But unto thee have I cried, O Lord, and in the morning shall my prayer prevent thee. In other words, I'm not going to stop praying. See, he didn't stop who he was. He didn't stop being who he was. Lord, why hast thou cast off my soul? Why hidest thou thy face from me? I am afflicted and ready to die. I want you to understand something, folks. This is indicating that Jesus came to the end of himself. He's powerless to come out of the place. He's paying the eternal price for sin. Not just in the holding place until the great white throne judgment occurs, but the eternal price for sin. He's come to the end of himself. I'm afflicted and ready to die from my youth up. While I suffer thy terrors, I am distracted. The fierce wrath, thy fierce wrath goeth over me. Thy terrors have cut me off. They came round about me daily like water. They compassed me about together. Lover and friend hast thou put far from me and mine acquaintance into darkness. Folks, I believe with all my heart that Jesus was cast into the lake of fire to pay the eternal price for sin. I want to show you Hebrews chapter 10. We'll close with this. Now remember why we got here. Jesus was given authority to execute judgment on the earth because he was the son of man. He said himself, now the the judgment is come. The prince of this world is cast out. He said the Holy Ghost would convince us of judgment because Satan has already been judged. In other words, the reason that this is important, the reason that Jesus was the sin offering and the scapegoat, is not just so that we could have the life of God. Thank God if that was, an, if that was all there was, that would be enough. It wasn't just so that we could make it to heaven when this life is over. It was so that we could live free from all the work and all the power of the devil. He's still here. He's still the God of this world. His, his time has not run out. He still has a lease that's not yet up. Thank God it will be up one of these days. But Jesus made a way for you to come to the Father so that you could live like he lived on the earth. Because you got the same life that he had, which is the same life that was in the Father, according to Jesus. So notice what Paul says to us in Hebrews chapter 10. We'll start in verse... uh, Well, let's start in verse 12. He said, but this man, talking about Jesus, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. The Bible says that at the point in time, the moment in time, it's the last verse of Romans chapter 4. It says at the moment in time that Jesus had paid the price, that divine justice had been satisfied. At the moment that it was complete, The life of God came back in him and Jesus became the first begotten or firstborn from the dead. Not the firstborn from physical death, the firstborn from spiritual death. People had been born or raised from the dead before. Jesus had raised people from the dead. He wouldn't have been the first if that was all it was. But nobody had been brought back from spiritual death. But this man, after he offered one sacrifice for the sins forever, for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God, from henceforth expecting till his enemies be made his footstool. Now please notice that phrase, expecting till his enemies are made his footstool. There seems to be a difference in attitude between Jesus and man's authority over his enemies and the church's idea About who we are in relation to our enemies. The enemy's the same. That's the devil. But notice that it says. As inspired by the Holy Ghost. As Paul writes to us. Notice it says that Jesus expects. Because he's executed judgment. Upon the enemy. Upon Satan. That judgment has already been executed. Jesus said that it would have been executed. Before the Holy Ghost was given. And thank God he's given to us. And he's given to convince us that judgment has already been passed upon the devil. And it indicates to us that Jesus fully expects you and I as members of his body to execute that judgment or to enforce that judgment that has been executed upon our enemies and live above all the enemy's works. That's his expectation. His expectation is your victory. His expectation is for you to live free from any and all of the work of the enemy, just like he did when he was here on the earth. Why? Because he's executed judgment on the enemy. He's cast the prince of this world out in that sense. Again, it's not that the devil has been done away with. A lot of people seem to think that we've got authority in prayer to do away with the devil. And you don't. Even though he obtained his position here on the earth illegally, he has a position until the end time comes until he's dealt with once and for all but that doesn't mean that you have to live subject to his work in your life and that's the expectation that jesus has now folks it seems to me that so often we get into this thing where we're trying to enforce our rights in the name of jesus but the reality is jesus has already done the work so it becomes a faith effort not a physical effort And it's something that Jesus is seated in heaven expecting it to be fulfilled in your life. I don't know about you, but I don't want to disappoint Jesus. So that means I've got a responsibility to live above the work of the devil so that his expectation is met. He wouldn't have a wrong expectation, would he? Well, what is his expectation? His expectation is for you to live free From all the bondage of the enemy and above all of his works, whatever they are. That's what he expects. Now, if that work was not accomplished, he would be unrighteous and unjust to make that expectation of us, wouldn't he? But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God, from henceforth expecting till his enemies be made his footstool. For by one offering he has perfected forever them that are sanctified. What was the one offering? Both the sin offering and the scapegoat which made the complete sacrifice. For by one offering he has perfected forever them that are sanctified. He has perfected forever them that are sanctified. Sanctified means to make Jesus the Lord of your life. By one offering, sin offering, one complete offering, the sin offering and the scapegoat. Jesus perfected you forever. That's why the devil spends so much time trying to tell you how unworthy you are. Because he knows that the work of Jesus has perfected you forever. Forever wherefore or whereof the Holy Ghost also is a witness to us forever after that he said before this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days saith the Lord I will put my laws into their hearts he's talking about the new birth and in their minds will I write them and their sins and iniquities will I remember no more now where remission of sins is there is no more offering for sin having therefore brethren boldness to enter into the holiest By the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he has consecrated for us. Remember that's what the sin offering did? It consecrated the holy place. That's what Jesus did for you. By a new and living way which he has consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say his flesh. And having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. In other words, he's saying because of this one offering, the eternal redemption that he's accomplished once and for all. Which in my mind means Jesus had to pay the eternal price for sin. Not just the holding price for sin, which is hell. But the eternal price for sin, which is the lake of fire. That would certainly hold true with what the sin offering was required. Or was, which was required of the sin offering, I guess I should say. And that was that it had to be burnt with fire. To what end? What's the bottom line? What's the takeaway for us? The door to God is wide open. Let us draw near without a sense of condemnation or guilt, without a sense of unworthiness or what we've done in our past or what we're struggling with in the present, knowing that the work of Jesus, the sacrifice of Jesus once and for all, the dual sacrifice of sin offering and scapegoat has opened the door to the Father once and for all so that you can come boldly before the throne of grace to find grace to help in time of need. If only our eyes were opened to how God wants us to operate in his power and with his presence. If We just got one glimpse of that. It would change everything we thought about dominion here in the earth. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for all that Jesus has done for us. Thank you for your eternal plan of redemption that Jesus accomplished. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for being willing to offer yourself as a sacrifice. Not just the sin offering to die on the cross and offer your blood on our behalf. But as the scapegoat to be cut off from the land of the living. To spend three days paying the eternal price for sin for all of mankind. No wonder when you were raised from the dead you greeted your disciples with such joy. And spoke of the authority that had been given unto you in heaven and in earth. And with delight you commissioned that authority in the earth back to your disciples. Not that there's no longer a devil to contend with. But that your original plan for man's to have authority here has been restored to all those that believe in you. We love you, Lord Jesus. We thank you so much for what you've done. We ask by the Holy Ghost that you'd open our eyes to see it and understand it like never before. Reveal our authority to us, Lord, that we might walk free of the enemy in every respect and so that we might, by the power of God within us and upon us, the power of the Holy Ghost given to us, would set others free too. Thank you, Lord, for restoring us to your original plan to exercise dominion over the earth. To guard and protect our part of this life from the evil one and his work and to enforce that which Jesus has accomplished to make his enemy and ours under his footstool, under his feet. Thank you, Lord, for showing us and revealing to us That which we need to know. In Jesus precious name. Amen. Amen. Well say it with me. The Lord is good.